0: Hey everyone, you're listening to the Authors of Mass Destruction podcast with fiction author and national security expert, Natasha Bajma. Join me as I interview subject matter experts about weapons of mass destruction and emerging technologies and authors who write about them. We'll discuss the ethical, societal, and technical aspects of science and technology so that you can tell great stories and still get the details right. Welcome to episode number 28 of the Authors of Mass Destruction podcast. My name is Natasha Bajma, aka WMD Girl on Twitter. I'm a fiction author, national security expert, and your host for this podcast. If you're interested in science and technology, in reading good fiction, or want to write fiction based on technology, you're in the right place. Before we get started, just a few notes. The views expressed on this podcast are my own and do not reflect the official policy or position of the National Defense University, the Department of Defense, or the U.S. government. The Authors of Mass Destruction podcast is proud to be part of the Authors on the Air global radio network. Check us out at www.authorsontheair.com. If you enjoy my podcast and want me to keep it up, I hope you'll become a patron for only $2 a month at Patreon. That's patreon.com forward slash Natasha Bajima. For $3 a month, you can get access to my new podcast. It's called Project Gecko after the second novel in the Laura Kingsley series. In each episode, I'll be giving brief tech news intro and then reading two chapters from my book. Basically this picks up uh, where Bionic Bug Podcast left off. If you haven't listened to that one yet, you can access all the episodes on Patreon for free. Just a quick personal update. I got back yesterday from a Business for Writers workshop in Las Vegas and spent a few days in Los Angeles. I got a chance to see The Terminator Dark Fate on the IMAX screen in Hollywood. It's pretty good and um, it's what you expect for the Terminator franchise. There were some chilling scenes and moments in the film about our potential future as we continue to integrate AI into robotic platforms. It's quite fitting since I'm now writing a novel uh, for Nano Month in November about using AI to automate the early warning and command and control systems for nuclear weapons. My headline for this week is Weaponizing Biotech, How China's Military is Preparing for a New Domain of Warfare, published by Elsa Kanya on Defense One on August 14. It's been a few months since the article came out, but I'm highlighting it now because I'm about to launch my third fiction novel called Genomic Data at the end of the month, November. It's the third book in the Lara Kingsley series, so if you're interested in reading it, I recommend starting with book one, Bionic Bug, which is now available on Amazon. Um, But anyway, some of the themes um, in this article come up in my book, so let's turn to the article. So what is it about? Well, amongst other things, China is looking to not only exploit artificial intelligence for the battlefield, but also its intersection with biotechnology, and that's where genomic data comes in. Our genomes consist of about 3 billion base pairs of chemicals called adenine, thymine, guanine, and cytosine, denoted by the first letters A, T, G, and C, and DNA sequencing, which you probably heard of, determines the exact order of those base pairs in your genome. Um, but it also converts that information into code that can be read by a computer. In the article, Elsa notes that the Chinese government has recognized the potential strategic value of gen- genetic information, and it launched the National Gene Bank in 2016, which intends to become the world's largest repository of such data. This effort is administrated by BGI, formerly known as Beijing Genomics Incorporated, and this company has a global presence, including laboratories in California, Australia. BGI also has a range of partnerships with American companies, and that gives it access to genomes of US citizens. So why is this significant? Well, obviously there's privacy issues with access to genomic data of US citizens, but also, while this information can be used to identify the cause of disease and potential cures, it can also be used to target certain ethnic groups or even individuals, which is kind of a scary notion. So if you're interested in these themes, I hope you check out my new novel, Genomic Data, coming out later this month. I'll let you know when it's available for pre-order. Let's go to the interview. Welcome to the Authors of Mass Destruction podcast. I'm here today with Patrick O'Donnell and Gavin Rees. Patrick uh, comes from the Upper Midwest. He's a full-time police sergeant in one of the largest U.S. cities. He has over 25 years of experience working assignments on undercover work, robberies, vice squads, violent crime task forces. He currently works as a consultant to authors and screenwriters on police procedure. He's also a self-published author. He's the host of the Cops and Writers Facebook group and recently published a book called cops and writers from the academy to the street. Gavin Reese comes from Arizona. He's a retired cop and special investigations detective. He writes hard-boiled thrillers. Gavin has experience uh, in high-risk police operations, uh, street-level narcotics, combat medical care, international drug trafficking, organized crime, SWAT operations, human smuggling, motorcycle gang investigations and many other things, including hazardous materials, um, radiation and nuclear terrorism. Can't wait to talk about all of that. He recently has published a prequel to a conspiracy series he's written called The Absolver. He is the host of the Writers on the Beat podcast, part of the Authors on the Air Global Radio Network. Welcome to the show.
1: Thank you so much for having us. Yeah, thank you.
0: This is really a cool opportunity, I think, for um, the listeners in particular, writers, to better understand um, when, when something mass destruction related goes wrong, um, how does that really get started on the ground? Um, because even even a, um, a weapon like a biological or a chemical weapon, at the end of the day, the first responders are the, are the first at the scene, and that would be you guys, um, probably, probably plus the fire department and the EMTs. So I thought what we would do is get started a little bit on um, why you guys decided to become cops and detectives. What, what drew you to that particular field? And we'll start with Patrick.
2: Well, let's see. Um, as a young lad, I grew up in Chicago. And when I was probably about 10 or 11 years old, obviously, you know, kids like police cars and fire engines, you know, that kind of stuff. So I was no different. I liked all that. Of course, you grow up watching Emergency and SWAT and Adam-12 and TJ Hooker and you know all the cool TV shows. So that kind of sparks your imagination. And there was one moment when uh, I remember I was probably about 10 or 11 years old. I was staying at my grandparents' house, which was, quote, unquote, in the hood. I was there by myself, and my aunt called, and she's like, hey, are you okay? And I'm like, well, why wouldn't I be? And she said, somebody just got shot out in front of the house. I'm like, oh, okay. So I peeked through the blinds. And sure enough, there's all the crime scene tape. Some unfortunate uh, person got killed with a shotgun. And uh, I was just like, wow. So I remember just staring out the window and watching all the police do all their police stuff. And I'm like, that's pretty badass. This is kind (laughs) of (laughs) cool. And then later on, we moved to the suburbs. And... I remember I was probably about 13 or 14 and the police, the local police department was executing a search warrant on our neighbors. And I was just like enthralled because their SWAT team was like literally in our backyard. One guy had a shotgun, the other one had an M16. And they're like in our backyard and I'm just like looking out the window and they breached the door. They're pulling people out by their hair. People are fighting, you know, and I'm just like, this is the coolest stuff ever. <laughs> one day I want to grow up and be one of these guys. This is this rocks. <laughs> then later on I went to college and uh, I did an internship with a big city uh, sheriff's department. And I thought it was the coolest stuff ever. And I'm just like, yeah, this this looks like a good job. Obviously it has its pitfalls, but, you know, i talking to the guys who have been doing it for a long time. They're like, you're not going to get rich, but you could raise a family on it you know, and have a decent pension if you make it out in
1: one piece. So it's like, <laughs> yeah. All right. Sounds good.
0: Gavin, how about you?
1: Well, I, I actually got, got into, uh, got into cop work because I couldn't get into the military right after, uh, in the days after nine 11, um, I was in, in college and, uh, a buddy and I, as soon as the recruiting offices opened back up, I guess probably that next week, um, we went down to, uh, to sign up and go do our, our hopeful duty overseas and found out from some medical issues I had when I was a kid that I couldn't get, uh, couldn't get a waiver to get in. So, um, stayed in school and ended up doing some work in finance. Uh, some friends of mine where I had grown up in, uh, in Albuquerque, uh, had gotten on the police force in the time and when did some Right alongs with him and with another friend that I had and realized they were having a lot more fun at work than I was <laughs> um, going out and and um, hunting bad men who deserved the hunt uh, was a lot more fun than talking about annuities and you know time horizon and a lot of the things that I was doing on my day job. So uh, that's kind of where that got started and because of my background in uh, finance and uh, some chemistry and critical writing. I pretty quickly got um, pulled up into uh, work in our special investigations unit, specifically on the financial aspects of international drug trafficking and the the civil uh, seizure side of the work, and doing all the all the financial analysis that's necessary to take and seize all the property these guys get through their uh, through their felonious activities, and then keep it for the police department, put it to to good use, and uh, along the way of Developed, or I guess, um, got a chance to, to get back into a little bit of my so my original interest with chemistry and some of the hazmat and radiation work at the end of end of my career there.
0: Cool. So something that both of you guys kind of referenced, um, Patrick. I think you said the word cool, and I think Gavin, you said the word fun, and. I studied weapons of mass destruction and have been working in this field for 20 years and I think it's super cool and fun, but it's also scary. And we spend a lot of time thinking about the darker side of humanity. And I'm wondering, is there a particular personality that gravitates to these careers where you have to think about really kind of, you know, crime, death, destruction on a regular basis that allows, is there something about us that allows us to um, deal with these issues on a day-to-day basis?
2: I think uh, a real good dark sense of humor is key, you know, it, and you know, it, it's either the chicken or the egg. You know, there's a certain type of person that goes into law enforcement. Like I said, you know, you got to, you have to have the right sense of humor. You, you got to be able to take a lot. And uh, I don't know if, and most people are alphas that get into this job. And I don't know if you get into the job and it, it becomes more pronounced. You know, I think it does. So I think there is a certain personality type, whether you're a man or a woman. And like I said, it's mostly alphas that are attracted to this job because mm-hmm. whenever you're at a scene, when you're whatever assignment you're at, you're in charge. You have to be in charge. You don't have to be an asshole about it. But, mm-hmm. you know, you're in charge. You have to. And mm-hmm. it takes a special a certain kind of personality to be okay with that. And, you know, like what you're saying, as far as like seeing all the, uh, all the um, inhumanity and what people are actually capable of, you uh, develop a very interesting sense of humor more than (laughs) anything else. And that's universal. Every cop I've talked to all over the country, they all have that same sense of humor. You have to have it
1: yeah it's absolutely a, a, a defense mechanism that, like you said it's a chicken and an egg either you know you're showing up with it and it's just gonna get worse
2: <laughs> or, <laughs> you learn,
1: or, or you know you learn it along the way um, I think you know absolutely uh, most everybody who comes into this career is definitely a type A overwhelmingly um, but I think for people who who are going to be successful in this career there's a subset of that type a personality that um, I, I didn't coin the term so I, I can't claim that but um, I heard it a couple years ago described as a guardian warrior and it's often in the the debate in law enforcement training of whether we should be teaching cops to emphasize a guardian protector personality or to emphasize a, uh, a warrior personality and I believe we actually have to have a combination of that. Um, And I I prefer the term guardian warrior because it emphasizes to me guardian first and warrior second, both by, I think, the relevance, but also the, the amount of time we spend in each of those. I think without a guardian warrior mentality that you want to stand up and defend people who cannot stand up and defend themselves, I don't think you'll be able to burden the... Atrocities that you're going to witness, that you're going to have uh, done or committed against you and your friends, or that you're going to have to commit against other people. It's a very caustic career. That that part always gets left out of the recruiting video, um, <laughs> you know. And I think, you know, we need as a as a culture to do a much better job of having more open dialogue about that specific part of it if we're going to start getting more guys past the five-year mark when they decide to go and sell insurance again and actually make it to, uh, to a 20-year career after all the, the time and effort, energy and money we've invested in them.
0: Yeah, I think, um, you know, one difference between, of course, my career and yours is that mine is big picture. It's at the national security level. I'm very distanced from kind of the the darker side of humanity i'm thinking about it all the time and i think you know kind of what you're pointing out you know you have to be both guardian and warrior you have to be able to be resilient um in your in in your own sense of of you know value system ethics and all of that because you when you start to really when you're confronted daily with what people are truly capable of it can it can really affect you can affect you internally And um, so one thing I think about when I think about why I'm able to think about nuclear weapons regularly and still sleep at night, um, I know that I have a very high capacity for compartmentalization. I believe probably you guys can resonate with that as well. But I think that is almost it's on one hand, it's required to do those kinds of jobs. But on the other hand, can be very damaging in other aspects of your life um, because the trauma that you guys, I'm sure, have experienced in the field um, at the scenes, crime scenes when you compartmentalize that and you don't deal with it, um, it can build up and um, cause problems.
1: Yeah. Eventually you have to have to f- have some positive productive way to let the the pressure off of those bottles. Um, otherwise they, they tend to blow and then they as a cumulative effect and, and then tragedy strikes.
0: Yeah. Patrick, okay. anything to add?
1: Yeah, you're absolutely right about that. One
2: thing that I've found through the years is exercise is huge. You know, I said, you know, a good sense of humor, but if you don't exercise, and that doesn't mean you have to be an Olympic weightlifter or marathon runner or whatever. Just through the years, I've seen people, officers that do exercise on a regular basis. I think they're more well-adjusted, you know, and there are pitfalls. You know, I worked nights for 17 years. It's hard to head to the gym when you're literally dead on your feet. And I would, I knew guys that they'd get done working a midnight to eight shift and they'd have to drink a six pack before they could get to sleep. Wow. You know, crawling inside of a bottle never works. You
0: know,
2: really high divorce rates. I mean, I got divorced. I can't blame the job entirely, but it doesn't help. Mm -hmm. You know, After a while, all the mayhem and all the ickiness in the world becomes white noise. It has to. I mean, you can't go home and boo-hoo about it. But, you know, just a good example, there was a homicide literally five doors down from me about two weeks ago. I -hmm. live in a town, the last time we had a homicide was like two years ago. That was Uh like a botched arm robbery. I know some of the particulars of it, and and I don't know some of it, but I know it wasn't like a stranger thing. You know, this is, so I'm like, you know, no big deal. But the neighbors are like literally freaking out. They've right. they got PTSD they're, and, and my wife is like, why are you laughing about that? Like, Cause it's funny. I mean, yeah. yeah. Cause it is. Yeah. Yeah. Because it's just funny. I'm sorry. You know, I just,
0: yeah. well, so it's yeah. funny because you guys experience that reality on a regular basis. Right. And so these people's bubbles were burst for one moment yes. and, right. and they, they are un, incapable of, of dealing with it. Um, And that's
2: the difference, right? Well, when I was a civilian, when I got out of college, our townhouse got burglarized, and I'll tell you what, nothing feels worse than knowing somebody was inside your house going through your stuff. I tell you what, for like a week, I just sit on the couch with a pistol in my hand. I'm like, "Come on in, I'm ready now. Yeah, I'll be more than happy to help you." You know, but yeah, <laughs> that, that's what I was a civilian. You know, it, you, you yeah. feel violated. It, I feel horrible for crime victims. Mm-hmm. You know. Yeah, you know, there's all different types of crime, obviously, but even you know that's a property crime, and people, it's not in the highest tier of like say like a homicide or something like that. But it really does affect people, and mm-hmm. it sucks. You know, yeah, and, you know, I, I, yeah, I, yeah, I love to listen to podcasts. I love to listen to different points of views, and you know, I'll listen to some, and they'll start talking about prison reform and how poorly uh, prisoners are being treated in prisons, you know, et cetera, and You know, and and our justice system is where people are sent to jail or prison as punishment, not for punishment. They're not supposed to be extra punishment once you get to jail, but it's not supposed to be, you know, the Hilton. And what I'd love to see some of these shows do is interview some of these victims of these people who are in prison. Mm -hmm. Now, all of a sudden, you wouldn't be feeling so sorry for them. You know, it, it literally ruins people's lives. Mm -hmm. just because some asshat decided to do X, Y, or Z to some innocent person. And Mm -hmm. it's not always an innocent person. I mean, like, I work in a very crime-challenged neighborhood. There's always some new catchphrase for it. The city I work at is 600,000 people. And last year we had over 400 non-fatal shootings. We had over 100 homicides. We're in the top 10. We're consistently in the top 10 most violent cities in the country. And it just becomes white noise after a while, right. you are know, just like, whatever. But I would say 90% of the time people are involved in these things, they're doing something illegal. Mm-hmm. It's not just, I was walking down the street and boom, I got shot for no good reason. <laughs> you know, they're getting a prostitute, mm-hmm. they're slinging dope, they're in the wrong neighborhood slinging dope, they're, you know, fill in the blanks. Mm-hmm. You know, so And the general public
1: doesn't realize that. Mm-hmm. I think okay,
0: the, Gavin, go ahead.
1: I was just say uh, I think part of that forgotten equation that you you, you brought up there, Patrick, is that uh, in in reality, right? The 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 press only wants to tell one side of that story about this this poor guy who's in prison for an extended period of time for no good reason, and in the reality of my experience is that you know you start out on probation for uh, way too many offenses before you actually end up getting county jail time before you ever have a chance at big boy prison and you know so for somebody to land serious time in a penitentiary takes a lot of effort um (laughs) it's excessively rare i can't say it doesn't happen but it's excessively rare that you know on your rookie at bat you land penitentiary time that almost never happens unless you know it's it's a, a domestic homicide or something like that
2: you're absolutely right. You know, this is like, oh, he just had a nickel bag of weed and now he's you know, in a supermax. Yeah. No, that does yeah. not happen. You know, there's deferred no. prosecution, there's probation, there's double secret probation, there's triple secret probation. Yeah, there's, yeah.
0: Well, that's interesting. I don't think a lot of people really kind of uh, understand that. Um, so, good perspective. So, today, what we're going to do, though, is we're going to go through three scenarios that are mass destruction related. And basically, I'm going to give the scenario and then have you guys kind of answer a bunch of questions about kind of what you do, what happens, um, and how, that, uh, how the investigation would proceed. So, the first one uh, a bomb explodes in an office building downtown. The bomb is laced with radiological material, CCM 137, but you have no reason to know this as you arrive on the scene. What happens first?
1: Um, yeah, if, go ahead. yeah I'll, uh, I'll, I'll jump in first and I'll, I'll play the, uh, the, the patrol cop who's uh, just responding to the urgent call. Um, the, the first thing that, that the typical patrol cop is going to do is going to be in, in this era, hopefully to, to get close enough to the scene to, to see what's going on and be aware of the possibility of secondary IEDs. Yep. Absolutely. Um, although, I say that knowing that in all likelihood, he's probably actually going to rush into the scene because of, you know, (laughs) nobody's, the odds of somebody dealing with two explosions in their career is almost zero. So it's going to be the first time that they've done this in real life. So a lot of the training that they've had um, on, you know, exercising caution and and observing and, and trying to to make sure that the scene is actually safe enough to go into is probably going to go out the window. They're going to fall, fall back on, on the thing they're most likely or most familiar with, um, which would be, you know, something more like a a violent armed ongoing confrontation. Um, so in all likelihood, the first few patrol cops are going to show up rushing because they want to help people. So they're going to be trying to get people out of the scene, triaging victims, getting them to aid and along the way, getting themselves Incredibly contaminated um, from the 137, uh, and uh, end up being a, a secondary casualty when when the, the fire trucks eventually show up that happen to have the rad meters on them and they start going off a block before they actually get to the scene. Um, <laughs> and then, if you want to jump in as a as a patrol sergeant, I guess what? To, yeah,
2: that's that's kind of my wheelhouse. You know, whether it's a bomb exploding or a shooting, or a fire, as a patrol sergeant, you know, there's certain things that I have to go to, and obviously this would be one of them, and I would be responding either at the same time as the cops, or shortly after, and one of the first things you do is assess the situation, you set up a command post, you follow a lot of incident command protocols, and like I said, and that's pretty much generic for, okay, okay, Something bad happened. There's a there, I'm, there's going to be a lot of moving pieces here. So, a you need somebody that's in charge. You have to establish that right away. So you get on the scene. It's like okay, squad 2115. I'm 1023. This is my location. Safe entry from. You'll <clears throat> because squads fire department they're going to start clogging up the street pretty quick. Mm-hmm. So you're going to want to let whoever is coming know. Okay, this is a safe place for other um, personnel to respond to. This is going to be our staging area. You know, you're going to have cops start setting up with the crime scene tape. And something like this, you make your crime scene, because it's a crime scene, as big as possible. You could always shrink it later. So this could be two, three city blocks. And obviously, you start requesting resources that are going to take the, the most time to get right away, because you know it's going to take a while. So it's like, okay, I'm going to need a mobile command post. I am going once, you know, you know, it's like it's a bomb and you have mass casualties. It's like, okay, I'm going to need a mobile command post because I'm going to need to coordinate with the fire department. I'm going to need to coordinate with other departments. And then once um, all that is, obviously, you're going to be looking for victims. You're going to be looking for bad guys. And like what Gavin said, the first thing that popped in my head is a secondary or a third dairy bomb. Mm-hmm. You know, that's what assholes do. You know, they, they want to go after the first responders. So <clears throat> you're going to do that. And like I said before, it's all incident command. And it depends on the size of the department and the experience of the people that are there. Like Gavin said, the initial cops are going to run in and try to help people. That's what we do. You know, that's just, it's in our DNA. You know, and so once things start calming down a little bit, That's when you start setting up the incident command, et cetera, et cetera. Um, If it is mass casualty, like I said before, you're going to be arm and arm with the fire department Mm -hmm. and the medics. Mm -hmm. And you're going to be trying to triage. You're going to have a spot for that. You're also going to have to set up, you know, this is going to be a big deal. Okay. The media staging point is two blocks away. You're going to have like a a parking lot or whatever. So you're more or less commandeering these buildings. It's like, okay, Mm -hmm. now it's mine.
0: Mm Mm-hmm.
2: And this is what we got. And, of course, like I said before, the challenge is communications because sometimes, depending on the department, you're not on the same radio frequencies or the ability to be with the fire department, the sheriff's department. Maybe smaller departments are going to be coming in to give you a hand, that type of thing. So it's best to have that command post. And it doesn't – we have a command post, and most departments do. There are Vs, more right. or less. Mm-hmm with all the cool stuff inside and -hmm. coffee makers and, you know, whatever Mm -hmm. else and water and, you know, stuff you don't think about. And it's just very, very helpful to have, okay, the sheriff's sergeant is sitting right next to me. Mm -hmm. The fire lieutenant is three people down from there and you can go face to face. So, I mean, I've been the incident commander for six, maybe seven officer involved shootings where an officer had to shoot and kill somebody, and I liken that because it's all incident command. It's mo- the most serious thing that can happen in an officer's life, the most you know dynamic, you know horrific thing that can happen, and everybody's coming, you know. And you're going to have to, you're going to have to um, coordinate with the detective bureau. You're going to have to coordinate with the bomb squad. You're going to have to <coughs> also. Somebody has to be in charge, so Mm -hmm. you you take that leadership role, and depending on the department and what their SOP is, it might be a lieutenant. A lieutenant might come and relieve the sergeant, and then maybe a captain will come and relieve the lieutenant. Most of the time, it's the sergeant that is the incident commander, and they're the one that's in charge of the nuts and bolts. I have a schedule in my hand. I I have a scribe next to me. I remember one of them. I just like I grabbed her and I'm just like, You are now my left arm. I said, every you write down everything I say. I want to know where every squad is and what they're doing. Mm-hmm. Because guess what? I'm gonna have people with scrambled eggs on their hat coming and they're gonna ask me, you know, WTF, what's going on here? You know, yeah, and you're like, it's nice to have all the answers for these people when they show up.
0: Mm-hmm. <coughs> Gavin I wanted to um, piggyback on something you said so you said that um, really you wouldn't know about the presence of radioactive materials until right. the fire trucks arrived that was what happens <coughs> once you've established that there's radioactive materials at the scene because then everything kind of gets more complicated
1: yeah it absolutely does and the the uh, before I retired actually we uh, our agency it's one of the benefits of being a what I would say is a, a smaller mid mid-size agency versus like where patrick works at, at, at a massive department um we actually had um rad detectors in all of our cars so wow. that, and all of our all of our cops went through um a a pretty lengthy and detailed uh, radiation training wow that's uh, impressive yeah we, we had uh we had some really significant radiation sources we were responsible for okay um, gotcha. and so that we're in our jurisdiction so um in anticipation of them being a, a, a very likely terrorist target. Um, we, uh, try to get ahead of that, but, um, for most agencies, uh, I think they're not going to have the availability, especially as a big department, they don't have the money to go out and buy it. Um, rad detectors aren't as sexy to a police department because radiation <laughs> is scary, um, as you know, um, other, uh, other necessities. So when the fire truck shows up, I think for most agencies in most places, that's going to be the first opportunity that they have to realize what's truly going on. And when the, the radiation detector starts going off, um, the fire crews first, um, are, they should stop <laughs> where they are, um, wherever that is in the middle of the street. Um, and try to get a secondary confirmation from, um, from another detector. Um, because most of the time they're probably gonna be carrying just like some, uh, a handheld or like, Uh, belt clip-on radiation detector, uh, like up on the visor of the truck. Um, But then they would be able to pull out a more detailed and thorough detector, um, like what they would use for identification, um, and then try to get a measurement there, a secondary confirmation that it's not a false positive, and we are really dealing with a radiological incident. At that point, that changes the entire dynamic, because this is no longer just an accidental explosion, and it's certainly no longer um, just... A, uh, a bomb. Um, this is now um, what w- would refer to as a weapon of mass disruption. Um, as radiation tends not to destroy in mass, but it, it causes tremendous disruption to society and economics. Um, but at that point, you're going to set up a much, much larger perimeter. You're going to have to bring oh, in yeah. spe- specialty resources. Um, and absolutely, um, you're going to start partnering with state agencies, with the ATF and FBI, very quickly. And everybody's through the course of this investigation going to figure out who's actually going to take jurisdiction, and that could still be at the at the state or local level or the feds, depending on what information is found. But along the way, you're all going to be walking kind of in lockstep uh, procedurally. At the point we realize that we need all these resources, we also need a lot more information about this radiation exposure we need to know where the hot zone warm zone and cool zones are where is it safe uh what is the plume where is this thing headed where's the wind blowing what's the weather forecast over the next 12 14 36 72 hours Um, the specific modeling that we did with with our source um, with fairly moderate wind conditions for that area Um, Would have had a plume uh, covering about 65 to 80 miles within 24 hours that that would have that cesium would have been detectable with just your handheld device. Um, So the impact of this is going to be very far reaching and uh, the public fear is going to be unbelievable. Um, Unlike a, a detonation that simply affects one city block or one neighborhood and puts people on a little bit of edge the fear of radiation is so disproportional to its actual impact. Um, You're not going to glow green. You're not going to melt. You're not going to, uh, you know, fade away into nothingness. Um, You might get cancer in 30 years, but we can't even really say it's from the radiation because we all touch glossy magazines that have uranium oxide in them. And we all smoke cigars and drink whiskey. Uh, (laughs) So, you know, the, uh, the, the whole nature of that will shift dramatically and a lot of specialized resources are going to come in to figure out, you know, what, who do we need to evacuate right now, who do we need to start moving out over the next couple of days, and what additional resources do we need to totally lock down probably, uh, you know, potentially a square mile or more of this area, and then long term, what's it going to take to clean up? And the uh, the answer probably starts with a B for billions, Okay,
0: so um, I just want to throw out a question here, and Patrick, you can jump in after that. Um, So the response is going to be massive. It's going to be far more complicated than a conventional explosive. Um, But there's also the problem of the investigation, right? You want to get the guy who did it. When does that start? You mentioned the cleanup being in the billions. When can you possibly get the investigation started in order to get the bad guy?
1: Oh, definitely from from minute one, as soon as yep. uh, as soon as everyone is responding to that scene and we have a known location, um, all of that information and data um, is going to be collected, recalled, recorded. Um, and that's all going to contribute to to the hunt. And so trying to find out, you know who was in that area, um, who left, who's been here, and ultimately what types of evidence they leave behind on this device, uh, the the cesium, um without giving away you know trade secrets um the cesium is going to probably be identifiable attributable to uh, to a source to a location and likely would have been a a known theft or we'll be able to to figure out where it came from and then when they go look for it and realize it's gone we'll be able to confirm that that is where this happened so that narrows down our suspect pool um who had access who's been here who's suddenly not showing up to work anymore Um, and, uh, also, you know, one of the things that really surprised me when I was going through post-blast investigation school was how much evidence is left behind by a bomb. It is destructive, but it's not like the thing disintegrates. You have pieces that are incredibly sizable left over, uh, even from a very powerful device that you're going to be able to use to put that back together, potentially to fingerprint, potentially to, to figure out even, where the components for the device came from, who bought them, how, and where. So it definitely won't be solved probably in 24 hours, but I would say uh, people who are going to commit these types of crimes, there's so much opportunity for us to apprehend and identify them afterward.
0: So how are you going to handle that evidence, though? Because it's obviously contaminated by the cesium as well. So do you need special resources or work with other agencies to examine that evidence?
1: Yeah, it rhymes with FBI. (laughs) I was actually teasing you to give me the answer
0: because I've been to the FBI lab in Quantico. So I've actually been where where that evidence would potentially show up. Um, At the FBI lab in Quantico, they deal with all sorts of contaminated evidence at a national level because these are the types of situations that don't occur, thankfully, a lot. um, But we need the resources. And so I was actually asking for that answer. So, Patrick, (laughs) do you have anything else you want to say?
2: Yeah. I'm going to piggyback on uh, Gavin there. As far as it starts with a clean crime scene and managed correctly. I mean, yes, you have a job to do, but part of your job is maintaining the crime scene. And what people don't understand is bomb techs, like what you said before, they're detectives and cops. Mm -hmm. So their job is, you know, is to take care of whatever device there is, but they are also, they have their investigator hat on at the same time. Mm
1: -hmm. You
2: know, it's not foreign to them. and, For something like this, like I said before, I've sat in the command post many times for different things. And then all of a sudden, it's like, if you start talking about terrorism, then, you know, the alphabet soup of feds are going to be banging on your door. And it doesn't happen immediately, but sometimes it can happen fairly quick. And you have to have answers. And then it comes to who's really in charge. Because Mm -hmm. nobody really wants to be. (laughs) (laughs) Because... What it boils down to is you're expending your resources and it costs money. I mean, and at the same time, if it's a major metropolitan area, other people are being burglarized. Other people are being robbed. Other people, it's like, how are you going to handle all that? Who's going to be taking, who's going to take the calls for service? Because they don't go away ever. Mm -hmm. You know, somebody on the the north side of town could have just shot and killed somebody over a nickel bag. So somebody's got to take care of that investigation. It doesn't go away. So there is a lot of jockeying around of, well, I'm not going to be in charge, but I will tell you, you know, blah, blah, blah. And then before you know it, egos are bruised. (laughs) And that gets, as just a lowly sergeant, yeah, I'm the incident commander, but there's people there that outrank me. Sometimes it is kind of entertaining to watch all the dynamics. Mm -hmm. Then you have people show up that have nothing to do with anything, but they have rank. And all of a sudden, it's like, ooh, look at me, chief. I'm doing police-y stuff. You know, I'm ordering people to do things. And it has nothing to do with what's going on. Or they're mm-hmm. just giving really, really bad mm-hmm. orders and bad commands. Because you know they work an admin job, and they haven't seen the street for 20 years. Mm-hmm. And they it suck. Sounds, sounds
0: like a great <laughs> yeah. novel right there. Um, <laughs> so, Gavin, you said something that I thought was really interesting. And it was about CCM-137. I'm not going to press you further on that, except that... Um, you mentioned that that seems to narrow the search, right? So when you use an exotic material like CCM-137 or a chemical agent or um, a biological toxin or anything like that, all of a sudden you've in some ways simplified the investigation, right? Because conventional bombs are like a dime a dozen.
1: Right. Yeah, and so... Uh, without going too deep into, the, into the, the, the physics and the nerdiness of it, um, so r- radiation, we, we think of it, the way I try to explain it to cops who don't want to be there and don't want to learn about it, <laughs> is you, you can think of it, you know, as a, as a heat source, right? So, and actually that's, you know, colloquially it's, you know, referred to as a, a really um, highly radioactive source will be, you know, referred to as a, a very hot source. Uh, but you can think of it as heat radiating out from this, this ball, this sphere. Um, you know, radiates in all directions. The closer you are to it, the hotter it is. And it burns at a, it starts burning at a specific intensity. And over time, that intensity fades. And you can predict that intensity drop off over time. So knowing, for example, the, the radiation exposure at a scene can help you understand how hot this was when it started burning. And knowing how hot it was then also eliminates, uh, potential sources or it helps identify a potential source because for example, you know, the, the source that, that we were charged with, with protecting primarily, um, was created, I think in about 1968, um, and is still unbelievably hot. So, But we know over time that its uh, loss of radioactive energy has followed its predicted pattern. So knowing how hot the source was when it detonated helps us identify where it came from, who it belonged to, and ultimately who's responsible for either putting it there or the lapse in security that got it there.
0: Yeah, I think what you're what you're dancing around without getting too nerdy is that every radioactive material has an isotopic signature, yes, um, and we're able to determine potential sources for that material depending on that particular signature. Um, Patrick, anything to add before we move on to the next scenario?
2: Um, like I said before, it all starts with incident command and getting the right people doing the right jobs. And, yeah, that's just trying to figure out who is actually going to take the lead for the investigation and keeping track of all the moving pieces. Yeah. You know, that gets to be a challenge because, you know, like a day later, a week later, well, who did what or what, you know, it all, everything's documented. Mm -hmm. Everything.
0: Mm -hmm. So in the interest of time, we're just going to go on to the third scenario. Um, A strange report comes in over the radio. Many people are collapsing in a local mall. Symptoms include headaches, stomach pain, nausea and vomiting, chest tightness, shortness of breath, muscle twitching and seizures. It turns out to be from an exposure to a nerve agent, but you don't know this when you arrive on the scene and there's no obvious cause of the symptoms. What happens first?
1: Well, I'll play the ignorant patrol cop running in again. Um, there's a reason that fire departments refer to us as blue canaries. Um, you know, so generally the fire truck wants to roll up and see where the last cop dropped down and then they're going to you know, base their standoff from there. Um, so you know what I think, uh, in, in the modern age post nine 11 law enforcement changed so dramatically. Um, over that next decade, right, that I think it's, while cops don't have radiation meters in every car, I do think it's fair to say we've at least got a gas mask in every car, um, probably with a Seaburn filter in it. Um, And so hopefully that patrol cop remembers to grab his mask out of his his, uh, war bag and throw that on before he goes in. In training and exercise, however, I have seen my own cops grab their mask and carry it inside the scene. So, you know, it does happen. Um, But assuming the cop does everything right, he's got this, a well-sealed mask when he goes inside, it's going to be pretty chaotic. Um, The people who are not yet harmed or injured or aren't yet affected are going to be rushing out. And the panic, I would imagine, going through that cop's mind of, is one of these people a suspect? And is someone running past me right now that I need to apprehend um, is somebody going to try to shoot me? Try to hurt me? Try to poison me? And I still need to go in farther to try to help anybody who's inside. And um, you know, at, at some point, the the cop is likely to realize that the people who are down are, are probably not going to be able to be helped. Um, but uh, hopefully, they'll encourage walking wounded to to get out. People who can self extricate. Um, and start establishing uh, a perimeter at least to keep this thing contained. Hopefully, somebody remembers to try to find an HVAC unit and get the AC shut off. And probably about that time, I would imagine a, a patrol sergeant showing up to, to try to take over this thing.
0: All right, yeah. Patrick, take over.
1: Looking at When I looked at this
2: scenario, I'm just like, it's very similar to the, your first scenario. Because, you know, as a patrol sergeant, everything is incident command, and that's what you fall back on. Once you figure out it's just not, you know, one or two people with the flu and, okay, things are going sideways here. Obviously, the fire department's going to be involved and you more or less lock everything down. You know, and what's nice, well, yeah, what's good about this is, okay, it's already a self-contained building. You know, if it's an inside mall, okay, all the entrance and exits are now sealed. If people made it outside, you're going to start getting county buses and putting them on buses. You know, depending on the weather, et cetera. But you don't want anybody leaving because, A, like you said, Gavin, they could be a suspect. B, Mm -hmm. they could be a witness with good information. And, you know, and C, they're a victim and they have to be treated. So everybody stays. Nobody goes in. So as a boss, my thoughts are, okay, I'm closing streets. I'm getting motorcycle cops to block intersections. Again, I'm going to have the mobile command post come out. I, I initiate incident command everybody's got jobs to do. And just like a lot like the other scenario, I'm going to be treating it very, very similarly. I'm going to be working hand to hand with the fire department. And once you start thinking nerve agent or anything like that, well, now the alphabet soup of, of feds, they're going to be involved, too. So there's going to be a lot you know? of coming.
0: How would you know it's a nerve agent? How would you know to involve the feds?
2: You know, as far as knowing it's a nerve agent, probably wouldn't right away. But, okay, something is weird here. People are dropping like flies, you know, and they're all kind of exhibiting the same um, symptoms. So I'm no nerve agent expert, but I don't have to be an expert in anything to know that something just ain't right. And the fire department's going to be there, and you have people that you work with, from all different backgrounds and you're gonna use that. And hey Sarge, this is I think this is, you know, and then the fire department, they're they're more trained up on this stuff than we are. You know, it has bad situations and any any kind of biological stuff, etc. And <clears throat> they were like, hey Sarge, you know, I think this is what we got. So you start you could start out with worst case scenario and you could always whittle it down from there.
1: And I, I think the biggest tell depending on what the, the agent is, right. is going to be the symptoms that people are exhibiting. You know, um, if there was, you know, a, a mass release of, I don't know, carbon dioxide or some type of otherwise innocuous gas that, that is just knocking people out. Um, they're not going to have the same symptoms as, you know, a nerve agent where they're going into seizures or, you know, they're frothing from their mouth or their nose, or there's, um, something else going on that's externally obvious that this isn't just um, an accident and it's not just limited to, you know, one family, one person. Um, I think the, the number and the types of symptoms should pretty quickly tell the responding cops and, and hazmat and fire crews that they're going to have to back up and treat this very differently than, yep. you know, um, just, you know, uh, some pandemic exposure.
2: If it starts looking like an episode of The Walking Dead, you're like, okay. <laughs> <laughs> all right, yeah. here we go. Yeah.
1: We're gonna be treat this a little bit earlier. Yeah.
0: Gavin, you mentioned turning off the HVAC system. Mm-hmm. Um, talk a little bit about that.
1: Yeah, so that's one of the things that um, through my work on the, on kind of the Seaburn side of things um, that I did not appreciate as as a patrol cop is how much we need other experts, other specialists, and even the the, the janitor, the maintenance guy at the mall or at a, an apartment building or an office building is invaluable, right? They have keys to everything. They know how everything works. They know where the shutoff is. They can get the water turned off. They can get um, the uh, the HVAC turned off, the power turned off. And as a patrol cop, when when you're especially when you're still green, right? You don't need anybody. <laughs> all, <laughs> all, you, all you maybe need is another partner with a long gun and you can conquer the world. <laughs> um, and, you know, unfortunately, that's just just not the case. Um, but as soon as the first responders start realizing that, that this is something obscure, something um, that's potentially airborne, and, you know, as soon as a number of people who are not together, didn't show up together, and are obviously strangers, start getting affected by the same thing with the same symptoms, it has to be airborne. Um, so one of the first things that should happen is getting that HVAC shut off so that it at least limits the the, the concentration of it into one area. The whole building is going to be treated as contaminated, yeah. but ultimately we want to do everything we can to keep it from rushing out, because um, mm-hmm. that's one of the things that You know, especially large shopping malls, right, they all have double doors on their entrances because the HVAC system works off positive pressure. So uh, by keeping that thing turned on, we're going to actually be pushing that contaminant out of the building.
0: Yeah, so there's that aspect um, from the national security perspective, um, the red team side of things is that Mm -hmm. if you want to get the most people uh, for the, the least amount of chemical agent, you want to do it indoors, and a potential delivery mechanism for that is through the HVAC system. Yeah. So at some point, you might be looking for the source of the nerve agent in one of those, those various systems. Mm-hmm. Um, so I just wanted to note that as well. Patrick, anything to add?
2: No. It, like I said, you know, you picked a good scenario as far as mm-hmm. an enclosed building or buildings, but everything's enclosed. I mean, not good for ventilation, obviously, but bad for um, you know the victims, and like you said before, it's going to spread pretty quick. But as far as containing the scene, it's ideal instead mm-hmm. of you know a block of people running all over the place, you know, blah blah. blah that you have everything in one spot.
1: Mm-hmm. And I think you know, from my my paranoid cynicism, um, my my second thought. Other than this is going to get a lot of people killed. Uh, my second thought was that this would be a fantastic diversionary device to get a lot of resources sucked up into one place and then commit the actual crime or actual, uh, actually disaster. You wanted to initiate somewhere else, um, and that's you know much like the secondary devices that we're concerned about and that have been showing up at um, scenes in the the Middle East and you know some over here. Um, to get first responders using a catastrophic incident or an active shooter or something like that as a uh, resource draw to get a bunch of cops, fire, medics, uh, important first responders to one area so that you're free to commit your crimes in someplace else um, is a very real, very real concern um, and something that you know authors could certainly use to to great effect in their thrillers.
0: The only thing I would add to that is that thankfully, um, you and Patrick are the good guys and I'm one of the good guys. Um, a lot of the bad guys are not that smart. No, um,
1: you know, the, 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 wor- <laughs> the, the worst ones are, is what we're afraid of. You know, it's the, right. the street, the yes. street criminals. not out doing this. This is, you know, this is somebody who's, you know, a, a, a true criminal mastermind and, you know, uh, with far ulterior, ulterior motives.
0: Yeah. So if you're talking about a villain that is truly strategic, has the mm-hmm. long game in mind, I was able to keep a very uh, tight-knit team because the the more complex the operation the more support you need so the more um, risk of, of detection and leak yep. right absolutely. so the bigger your operation is the more you know risk you face as a bad guy um, if you can keep that that tight-knit group together and carry out your um, your scenario yeah having this as being the first step in a scenario would be absolutely brilliant
1: yep absolutely yeah that's how I'm gonna do it yeah, yeah.
0: That's- <laughs> awesome. Awesome. Well, this has been a really fascinating discussion. Thank you so much. Um, before we go, can you please each tell the audience where they can find your books, uh, find you on the internet? Patrick, go for it.
2: Sure. Um, I do have a website, www.copsandwriters.com. You can find me, most of my stuff through there. I do have a Facebook group, Cops and Writers, uh, like I said, uh, that's on Facebook. My email is sarge at cops I will be at 20 books, Vegas this year. That's going to be in a few weeks. So yes, hopefully I'll enough. see some of you guys out there. And you yeah. said you
0: have a second book coming out. Um-
2: I, I do. Um, I'm Amazon exclusive right now. Cops and writers from the Academy to the streets. I launched that I think it was June 21st, June 22nd. And The second book is Cops and Writers, Crime Scenes and Investigations. That goes more into the weeds of uh, the investigative side of the house. And uh, the first one was more of the patrol side of the house. And um, yeah, that should be out hopefully
1: the end of November going into December.
0: Great. I look forward to that. Gavin, how about
1: you? Well, you can find all my info at gavinreese.com. And uh, I've got two different series that are up on Amazon right now. One of them, a crime series based on a lot of my training experience uh, working as a cop. And the second is a conspiracy series about a very conflicted priest who's a former cop and struggles with uh, righteous indignation and and moral violence as he tries to uh, navigate his response to to the victims and, and criminals he meets in his work as a priest.
0: Great. Well, thank you guys so much for your time today.
1: Thank you. I really appreciate the invite. This was fun. Yeah, this was a good time.
0: Thanks for listening to the Authors of Mass Destruction podcast. If you enjoyed the show, please leave a review. You can also support my time in producing the show with Patreon at www.patreon.com forward slash Natasha Bajma. For more information about the podcast, go to www.authorsofmassdestruction.com. See you next week.